Welcome to Women of the Military podcast. I'm your host, Amanda Huffman, and this week I am doing a bonus episode replaying my interview with retired Brigadier General Wilma Vaught and sharing about her experience. For the summer, I will still be bringing you new episodes, but I also am going to sprinkle in some older episodes just to give myself a little bit more space as summer comes and life is a little bit crazy. So I really hope you enjoy going back to listen to these older episodes and that you get a lot out of them. And I'll also include why I chose each episode throughout the summer to provide a little bit of an update on how this episode got chosen and a little bit about the story behind it. So let's start with retired General Wilma Vaught and hear why I chose this episode. I picked this interview because there's kind of a funny story behind it. Because of General Vaught's hearing, it was easier for her to do the episode in person. And originally we were going to try and do it in D.C., but it ended up that it worked out better for her to come to my house. So she got to come to my house, sat at my kitchen table, and I got to hear her story and record it for all of you. So that was a really cool experience to have her come to my house and to just be able to talk to her and hear her experience. And I think that the work that she did to help get the Women's Memorial is really important. It is another way to record our stories and to highlight the things women have done in the military. And I encourage you, if you are a woman veteran, to go to the memorial's website and register your story. I'll have the link in the show notes so that it's easy to do if you want to do that. But I really just want to highlight different people and different stories. So with my little introduction out of the way, I'm going to reintroduce General Vaught, and then we'll get started with the interviews. Retired Air Force Brigadier General Wilma L. Vaught served in the Air Force for over 28 years, retiring in 1985 as one of the most highly decorated women in U.S. history. Throughout her career, General Vaught forged new paths and pioneered opportunities for the service women who would follow. A Vietnam veteran, she was one of the few military women in the war who was not a nurse. And when she was promoted to Brigadier General in 1980, she was one of a handful of women in the world who had ever achieved that distinction. In this interview, we talked about her experience in the military and then how she came to help with creating the Women's Memorial, and she ends with her advice for the next generation of women, and I really hope you enjoy this interview. Before we get started with this week's interview, I want to remind you that you have the opportunity to listen to Women of the Military podcast now on Reese Across America Radio twice a week. That's Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, and you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. And now with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome to the show. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you. Let's dive in with the first question of why did you decide to join the military? I was working at a plant that was operated by the federal government making heavy water for weapons. I worked for the DuPont Company, and I kept looking, and I wasn't seeing that women were doing very well, with the exception of one who was a vice president, but her last name was DuPont, and my name wasn't DuPont. (laughs) 
And so I decided after about uh, six or seven years that uh, I wanted to go someplace else where I would have an opportunity for promotion. So I decided I would leave. Now, this turned out to be a very smart decision because about three days after I had resolved the issue about going into the military and had raised my right hand and had been sworn in as a second lieutenant, I found out that they were going to close that plant. So I would have lost the job anyway. Wow. So you felt a little bit like you were stuck and you wanted to join the military and you thought that would be a way to help you get promoted and move up the ranks? Well, I hoped I would get promoted. That my promotion came in a rather strange way because I had been graduated from college for some six or eight years, and I received a letter from a major who served in the Army telling me that I could get a commission, a direct commission as a second lieutenant if I uh, had the right background, if I was interested. So I decided I would be interested. And so then uh, when I got that, then I had to, I d- had to decide, well, now, do I really want to be in the Army Or do I want to be in in the Air Force or something else? So how did you make that decision? You said you were thinking Army or Air Force. So how did you decide on which one to pick? It happened that uh, there were two fellows who had served in World War II who had served in the Army. Uh, One of them had left the Army after several years. In fact, he retired, I think. The second one had gone to the Air Force after serving in the Army. So they both considered me as a female going into the Air Force or the Army, and they decided that I would have greater opportunities in the Air Force as a female than I would in the Army, and that that's uh, what I should do. So I decided I would check to see if the Army had a, or the Air Force had a similar program to what the Army had, that I could get a direct commission as a second lieutenant. So I drove over to Chanute Air Force Base, which was near the University of Illinois, where I had gone, and uh, talked to the people there and found out they had a similar program and that uh, I could see if I would be accepted, and if so, I could go into the Air Force. So they felt like the Air Force would have better opportunities because you're a woman, and that was the main driving factor? Yes, It was. And I think they were correct in what they said. Uh, When you think about it, and particularly at that period of time, the men, they were the military and they went out by themselves to fight with the equipment. Uh, We were in the Air Force. You had a very small number of people that worked with the planes and you had other jobs that were, some of them were related to that that women could do. And you had opportunities that you didn't have because of the difference in the way they fought the war. So uh, that's the way it worked out. And I feel like those changes for women kind of just recently came about in 2016 when they opened up all jobs to women because that was a big limiting factor for women and it would be even more so years earlier. It certainly was. What was your job when you were in the Air Force? What were you doing? Well, I had various jobs when I was in the Air Force. I went uh, through the 
a training program that was three months long down at Lackland Air Force Base. And I was hoping to get away from uh, working in, in uh, supply and things like that because that's what I'd been doing with the DuPont company. And so I went uh, into training for the computers, which were a very new thing back then. And I also got some training for the comptroller field. And that was how I got started. When I was assigned to my first base, I was supposed to be assigned uh, the computer to data. And so I reported to where I was assigned, Barksdale Air Force Base in Shreveport, Louisiana. And the first person I met there when I reported one evening was a very young female enlisted person who told me I was going to be the new commander of the their squadron. And I said, I'm not going to do that. I'm on a direct assignment to work in uh, data. She says, oh, I think you're wrong. So the next day when I reported, I took my orders. It said that this was a directed duty assignment. And they told me, no, I was good. They needed somebody to be the commander of the women's squadron and uh, that they needed me to do that. And I said, I don't see how when you read what this says that you can do that. So then they told me I would be assigned to that office, but that wouldn't be where I would report. I would go report at the uh, barracks where the women lived and where my office would be until they found somebody else to do that job. And then I could go to my duty assignment in data. So what were you doing? Were you kind of just like managing all the enlisted troops, the women enlisted troops? We had uh, 200 or so women. And so I was managing their staying at the in the rooms there. It was an interesting uh, exercise for me. Uh, one of the things that I remember so vividly was the chaplain said, I want you to come and talk to me. So I went over to talk to him and he said, you need to understand that there are some of the things that you might tell uh, one of your uh, women, perhaps who may be pregnant or something like that. And what you say can end up uh, as a law question. You need to send them over to me. When you they come and tell you they have a problem they need to, need to talk to you about, you send them over to me to talk to because I don't have to report to the law. So that uh, stayed with me all the rest of my career. Yeah, it sounds like you were kind of thrown in. You were like, here you go, and you're in charge. Uh, one of the things we didn't learn when I was at Lackland Air Force Base was how to be in a parade. And the, one of the first things I learned is we were going to be in a parade with all of the male unit. Well, that was a real thing. So uh, one of the sergeants got me uh, some information on how to, what you had to do in a parade. So I studied it and learned about halt and all those things. And that turned into an experience because I can remember going as we got started to go over there for the parade, uh, we came, uh, we marched off uh, where they lived, and and I couldn't think of what they were, what I was supposed to say to get them to turn, and they were about to march into a, a ditch, <laughs> and I finally just told them to stop. <laughs> and turn right. <laughs> and so then we got over to the gate to go on the base, and I couldn't remember what I was supposed to say <laughs> to get them to stop. And I finally just said, stop. 
<laughs> and we marched into position, and we were not quite positioned next to the uh, men that were next to us. And I said, we didn't stop quite where we were. Now, when I say go, I want you to go take two steps to the right and then two steps forward, and then we'll be fixed. Well, needless to say, the fellows were laughing like crazy over there. Well, interestingly, we took first place because they marched so well. Women march better than men do, I concluded. And we won first. And what that meant was that I didn't have to go to the next parade. And I want you to know I spent the rest of my whole career and I never had to march in another parade. (laughs) Of course, the reason for that was that I left. They didn't find the person to to replace me there as the commander. And I went over to where the data people were. I had an opportunity and and there was a, a lieutenant colonel female who had served during World War II. And she told me they were doing a check to find out who would like to have a regular commission, which would mean that I would be somebody to serve for a long period of time. So as it was, I was only in for four years. I said, oh, I don't know that I want to stay. She said, I want you to go take that test. (laughs) So I went and took the test and and I was selected as a a regular officer. And what that did was that moved me up to the top of the list to go overseas. And I really wanted to go west to go to overseas someplace, to Hawaii or someplace like that. And they sent me to Spain. Retrospectively, that was a great decision on their part, and I really enjoyed it. So what was it like to go to Spain? How old were you when you went to Spain? Well, I guess I would have been, uh, I was in my 20s probably about 24 at that point. And I was assigned there to be in charge of the the computers, but they really hadn't gotten the computers yet. So that wasn't a problem. And the base I was assigned to, they were still getting it built. And there were nurses there who were females. And there was one enlisted woman and I was there as a second lieutenant, and we were all of the, we too were all of the women who were assigned to the base. So that was a very interesting of itself. So I learned an awful lot, and I had about three or four people working for me in the comptroller office. So that was, uh, that was interesting. I signed up uh, down with the, in the city to study Spanish, which I had studied some in college, so that I could speak the language there. And that turned into a good thing because the commander liked the way I translated better than he did with the Spanish translator. So he usually took me to certain of the events to translate for him and to make sure that he was doing the right thing. Now, our commander was a colonel. We weren't at the general officer business at that base. And, of course, the Spanish didn't have any women in their force, so this was a big thing for them to meet me as a second lieutenant, a female in the military. It was the greatest assignment of my whole career in many respects. Was it challenging to be one of the only women, and like, was it lonely? Well, what I learned was, and this was a lesson, because most of the places that 
it was assigned for some years. I was one of very few women assigned there. Being willing to volunteer was a good thing to do. And if you volunteered for when they had a special job and you did well at it, uh, you were going to to be visible to people, and they would like having you around. And that's what I learned as a lesson there in Spain, and I carried that with me for some year, for years to come. And I think that's good advice for women today or just people in the military to volunteer and do that job well, and people will notice. I believe it's still a smart thing to do, that when there's something that you can volunteer for, to volunteer if you think you can do it at all. So where did you go after Spain? I was assigned to Orlando, to McCoy Air Force Base, which was a B-52 KC-135. So we had the big bombers, fuel replacement aircraft there. So that was uh, a good thing. Now, that uh, was an an incident. Uh, I was there as a captain. I'd been promoted that much, and I'd gone through a series while I was there at Spain when they had uh, gone, they'd checked my physical exam, becoming a registered officer, and uh, lo and behold, they decided that they weren't going to give me a waiver on my eyesight, which I had a waiver going in. I was going to be discharged in in a matter of three months. Well, this was a big fight. I had came back to the States during that period of time and fought this battle and ended up going to my senator from Illinois, and he helped me, and and I was able to be signed up as a, a reservist, but they kept me. And so that's what I was when I went to Florida. I was a reservist. And there was I was there. There was a lieutenant colonel female. There was a nurse who was a captain. And there was one enlisted woman who was there with her husband. And we were the total female uh, military people at that big base. So that was interesting. Yeah. It's crazy because I felt like a minority when I was in. There were two two female officers and like 10 or 15 enlisted troops. They're just in our squadron, not the base, that's yeah. the squadron. And I felt like we were a minority, but to be like one of like less than five for the whole base is even, it's crazy how much has changed. Yeah. And I think sometimes we think, oh, there hasn't been that much change. But hearing your story makes me realize that there's been a lot of change. It was interesting. There's the same thing happened to me there that had happened in Spain when I first went there among the men who worked for me. And that was, they didn't think they ever wanted to work for a woman. But after I'd been there two or three, uh, well, about two, at least two or three months, they would start catching me and stopping me. And they'd say, you know, I wanted to be transferred when I heard we were going to have a woman in charge, but I would work for you any place. So I hope you're going to stay. And this, I felt, came because I did everything I could to help my people. And they hadn't been, they'd been ignored as far as getting promotions were concerned. And I took that on. And they began to get, some of them began to get promotions from their squadrons. So that was, they liked that. (laughs) And and so that uh, became much of what I did, given tasks to do uh, 
certain tasks for the colonel who was the, the commander of the base. And it ended that I was transferred from the office which I was originally in, which was the comptroller, to work just outside of where he was. And I, and I had where his office was. And that the end result of that turned into a pretty exciting thing because I had decided I wanted to go get my master's degree, and I'd applied to do that and been accepted. And the Vietnam War started, and they gave our uh, wing uh, was charged to go to Guam and be in charge of the bombing that was taking place in Vietnam. So the commander told me he wanted me to go with him. And I said, no, I can't do that because women can't uh, go on a mission like that for the strategic air command. And he said, no, I want you to go. And I said, well, further, I'm supposed to go to to the Arizona and get my master's degree. No, you call them and tell them that you want that delayed, that you have to go to Guam. So I finally called, and they said it would be okay if I did that. So I went over there, and that turned into an interesting thing. So I was involved with the Vietnam War before the war really broke out mm-hmm. in full force. And, uh, and before so many people started going, there were 3,000 men in the uh, unit in our squadron there. There was an, uh, another squadron that came from uh, Montana. So there were two of them, but my boss was the commander of the whole thing. There was 3,000 men and me. That was, uh, <laughs> that was an interesting uh, margin, and it was a wonderful assignment. I got to do many things that as you know, somebody who was a non-pilot, non-any of those things, I could go out to the flight line and see the planes take off and into see them working on planes. And then I did things that my boss wanted, like when the commander of strategic air command came, I was responsible for preparing the, the, the things that we were going to tell him and everything that went with that for him to see on the screen. I was responsible for that. And I remember that particular time, I went on Monday morning to work. I worked just outside the commander's office, and I got to go home when I got the, the whole speech thing done on Wednesday. And I didn't get to sleep from Monday till Wednesday. <laughs> so it was, it was interesting. I was there for six months. That was one of the greatest memories of my life. And, and working for that commander was a great thing because I got to do things that he assigned me to do that I never would have had under any circumstances, and he trusted me to get them done. So I came back and went to Alabama, went to Alabama, a school which has a football team. <laughs> I learned that. <laughs> uh, so I went there and got my master's degree. And and then as I finished my master's degree and got my next assignment, I was assigned to Vietnam. Yeah, so I think a lot of people don't know that women were sent overseas for Vietnam, except for like the medical type stuff. That's the only thing that I've really known about and have talked to anyone about. So can you talk about what you were doing in Vietnam? Well, most of the women who served there were nurses or doctors. They weren't in things like I was. And so when I got there, four or five of us females assigned to the headquarters where the 
general who was in charge of the whole command was. And I couldn't believe it when I went to the office, which I was uh, assigned to, and I found that my job was to report once every three months to the Secretary of Defense our cost reduction during that three months. And I said, well, what do you do once you've done that? Then there was a man that was doing that when I got there. He says, well, you wait till the three months are up and then do the next report. I said, you don't do anything in between? He said, no, they didn't assign me anything to do. And I thought, well, this is going to be terrible. So I went through the files they had and that became very helpful because when people want to know something, I was the one who looked in the files and I could tell them. And so I began, the next thing I knew, I was given the job of being the person who was the, the one who worked with the auditors who were in. So if they wanted to go someplace, they would come and see me and I would make the arrangements. And when they made their reports, I went to all of the staff people and got responses to that and then got them signed and sent them to uh, Washington. So that's what I did during my year there. One of the most exciting moments was uh, one night they bombed building next to to us about a block away, which was the place where the Vietnamese got their uh, vegetables and things like that. And it happened about six o'clock in the morning. And I thought, oh my goodness, we're going to be bombed. And that's where my quarters were, was in the hotel there. And so I was going to go up to the ceiling, up to the roof and see what was happening. <laughs> and somebody knocked on my door and they said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm getting ready to go to up to the top. And this was a fellow major. We were both majors. She said, that's what I knew you were going to do. I came to tell you, you can't do that. <laughs> And about that time, they stopped bombing, so there wasn't any point going up to the roof. I guess she knew your spirit. and what you She knew do. my spirit. <laughs> I liked how you talked about how you were given, like, one job, and you knew that wasn't enough to keep you busy, so you found stuff to do and then ended up finding more to do. Is that something that you did, like, throughout your career? You always were trying to do stuff. I, I liked when you talked earlier about taking care of your people, and so... That worked for me everywhere I think I went. And I worked with my people to encourage them to get... So they had more skills. If they had, weren't going to college, to go to college, get their education, so they would be qualified for their jobs. One of the exciting things about knowing I was going to Vietnam, I expected I would have to go down, and I'd never had to be qualified with weapons, and I thought I needed to be qualified. So I checked with the Air Force and said, do I need to get cleared for uh, having a weapon? They said, no, you don't need to, be, to do that as a woman going to Vietnam. Well, this just didn't seem safe to me, so I got a hold of my brother-in-law, who was a very skilled person with weapons. And I went home and I learned how to fire rifles and, and a handgun. And then I went back to the Air Force and told them that I wanted to qualify if it was okay. And they said it was, so I went down. And I got there. Who should be there? The only people there were a bunch of men who were qualifying to go fire in and, in and win prizes for doing it because they were the experts. But I went ahead and I fired when the sergeant that was doing this with me, he said, okay, you've hit the target. It looks like you've qualified. 
And I said, are you sure? He said, yes. And to this day, I've never been quite sure whether it was all those fellas firing at it or it was just me. <laughs> but I still have that thing they had up there, to, shot full of holes that uh, he said were mine, what I did. And when I got Vietnam and was assigned to this hotel where the two of us were, because there were only five women and the other three were quartered someplace else. The two of us were there, and the person I was replacing was uh, with uh, was Army, and she was one of the investigators for the Army. And so when she left, and she said, "You need to get trade for my room because it's a better room." And so when I when she came, told me that it was the day, and I went there, and she said, "Well, I want to show you one something here in the uh, furniture." And so she opens this drawer, and there are two rifles in there. And she had managed to acquire them because she had been there when they'd had an attack there in, in Sangria. She said, now, I didn't have those because they approved it, but you can't tell what may happen, and you may want these here, and there's ammunition in, in the two rifles. So I had them there in the, the drawer in case I needed them all the time I was there. So when I got ready to come back after my year, year and eight days there, I went over to the office. I found out there was an office where you turned in weapons. I went over there and I said, what can you turn in weapons that you were never given? <laughs> and the man said, oh yes, we'll take those. <laughs> I said, okay, I'll get them here. So one of the fellows in my office took the Jeep and we went down to back to my hotel and we got my two weapons and we took them there and turned them in. That's crazy just to think about deploying overseas without a weapon. That's and right. Did you wear the fatigues when you were I, I, I thought we, we would surely wear slacks or something. They said no I would just wear the the, the ordinary skirt and, and top and that's what I did. That's where I had a pair of slacks that, that I wore uh, when we exercised in the military when I was in, in training. I did it one trip in a plane to the, the next nearest base with the auditors and I wore it then, my slacks. Right. Other than that, I could wear them on the weekends. Or we worked seven days a week, but we usually had half a day off on Sundays, so quite frequently I'd put them on for that. But I wore my uniform, skirt, and <laughs> top. It certainly isn't like it is today. And is that what you wore when you were in Guam, too? Yes, you wear what you're authorized to wear. Yep. Something that happened, I think, right around the time, if I did my math right, was in 1967, the 1948 Women Armed Service Integration Act was changed. So what did that mean for you being in the military and being a woman, and how did those changes affect you? They finally, because we were limited to how far we could be promoted, when women first went in way back when, they were limited to lieutenant colonel for a long time, for years. It, going into World War II, they were that way. They couldn't be promoted to general officer at all. And so 
there were only nine colonel positions, and they were temporary. You were only a, get considered a colonel for the length of time you were assigned to that job. Usually that was, you were in a very key uh, position in charge of people, like the the ones who was in, in charge of the WACs and in charge of the, the WAF, the Women Air Force people, or the Navy, or the Marine Corps. Those positions were colonels. Uh, level or captain for the Navy. And so that finally changed. Didn't uh, get people promoted for quite a while, but it came. I was very fortunate. I was one of the first 35 or 40 who was promoted to Brigadier General. I think sometimes, well, even in my research, I didn't realize how important that date was and how much that changed. It wasn't just that women could serve in the military and the, the provision went away, but like it opened doors to being general officers and to be where we are at today. That's right. There were so many restrictions for women about what they could do and what they couldn't do. And for the Navy, they were very restricted. They couldn't go uh, aboard a ship. Now, a nurse could go, and nurses were... Uh, went on ships during uh, World War II, for example. They can be there. But women doing something from the standpoint that uh, they repaired something or the kind of things that many of the women did uh, couldn't go on ships. Now, the reason for that had to do with the restrooms. They didn't have a restroom for women. And this went on and on and on for years. And, And finally, one woman who was an enlisted woman, she couldn't advance in her career because she needed to go get experience on a ship out on the water. And she went and sued the commander of the Navy about that, that this was unfair. And she won. The the judge ruled that this was not right, that they couldn't do this. And so that got changed. Finally, and I thought it was so funny when they decided that women could be assigned and they decided a whole bunch of them could go at one time and they left from Norfolk and they got on board ship and guess what? In three months from the time they had decided that it was okay for them to go, they had managed to figure out how they could make a restroom for the women on board that ship. But then the the same thing was true for flying aircraft. And it was 1970-something that uh, they finally decided that women could learn to fly, but they were very restricted as to what they could fly and when they could fly. And that certainly didn't mean they could go fly into combat. And that uh, finally changed when we were fighting in Iraq. One of the helicopter pilots was a female, and uh, she got assigned there. So it's it was just a slow, slow progress. Yeah. Even we talked earlier about the 2016 law changing and women being finally allowed to be in combat roles. And when I was deployed in 2010, I was out on convoys, and people sometimes think that because women weren't allowed to be in combat until 2016, that somehow we were protected and we weren't doing these things, but there's been so many changes. You can think at times about what you do while you're in the military or anything you do for that matter, in fact. One of the things that I am most proud that I did was I always tried to encourage people to get educated, to do whatever they needed to do so that they could be 
available to do something else. And I remember one fella that was stationed with me in Spain, and I said, he w- he was working for me, as a matter of fact. I said, you've got to go. They offer these courses. You go take those courses. This happened to be a black fella. And he finally agreed to go, and he went. I got him started first on reading books because he was reading comics before that. So he started reading books, and I finally got him to go into this, and he continued on. And some years later, after I, long after I retired, I received a letter from him or an announcement, and he had retired after making chief master sergeant, and he was teaching school. And that all came about because I kept forcing him to go get an education. And when I came back from Vietnam, I was stationed at Dayton, Ohio, at the logistics command there. And there was a very talented woman there. She was about a GS 5 or 6. And I said, well, why don't you get promoted? Because you do so well. She said, well, I don't have the education. I said, well, they've got the, a college, you, college here that you can sign up with. Why don't you do that? Oh, I don't think I could do that at all. I said, you go over there, and I want you to take one course, and I want you to be sure it's not uh, something simple, uh, that it's something that will be meaningful to you in getting your degree. Some years after that, I happened to be at the the airport, and this woman came up, and she said, I'm so-and-so that you knew when you were in Dayton. I said, well, how are you doing now? She said, I came up to tell you that I'm up here because I'm going to be promoted to GS-14. And she said, it's all because you finally convinced me that I should get my education. And there was just person after person. And, you know, it's something that costs you nothing. And all you've got to do is just persuade people. They've got to do it. They've got to keep educating. Yeah, and I think that shows the impact of, like, having a good leader. And you took time to invest in people, and then they move forward. And it's cool to hear story after story. I'm sure there's a bunch more you could tell about people that you just push to get their education or to do that change and how it changed their life. So that's really cool. It can be an interesting life in the military. So you were at Wright Pat, and then where did you go after that? I was uh, selected early for a lieutenant colonel, and uh, I was selected to go to a special training thing here in Washington. And so that was a year's long, and I came to that. I was very fortunate when I was uh, selected early for lieutenant colonel that I I was first picked to go to the National uh, War College, which is where I wanted to go. And then uh, there was another woman selected. We were the first two women to be selected in 20-some years when there had been two other women selected. And in between, there hadn't been any. So... My background was closer to the ICAF, the industrial college, than hers was. So she got selected for the National War College. Well, it turned out she didn't want to go there. So she quit, and they had, they filled it with a man, and I couldn't get transferred. So I went to ICAF, and uh, there was only one of us. I was the third person to go to one of those uh, two training programs. So that was uh, that was one of the interesting things I did. So there were like 50 men and me at that uh, training program. Then where did you go after that? 
Well, from that, I was I was assigned to the Pentagon, and I spent about four and a half years there. And uh, from there, I got transferred to Andrews Air Force Base, to the Air Force Systems Command. That was uh, just a wonderful thing that happened. It happened that my boss there at the Pentagon got transferred there to Andrews as the comptroller. And so I went over as the budget officer, and then he got his second star, and I got promoted to replace him. And that's when I had something that managed to get me my promotion to Brigadier General. And that was a wonderful command, working and being involved in seeing all of the things that we were working to cause to happen, some of which were highly classified, but I thoroughly enjoyed that. And then from that, I went to Illinois, which was my home state, to Great Lakes, which was a Navy. I first went to the Army base, but it was being closed. So then I went to the Navy base there at Great Lakes, and I was the commander of the the Military Entrance Command, where we went around to 71 or two different bases around the country, and to Guam and to Puerto Rico, where they recruited uh, people to go on the service. They were all under us where they signed up, and we were, and that's uh, what I did for my last three years in service, and it was great. You were really busy traveling all over? Yes. It was, uh, I went to every base in Alaska, went there, and it snowed. Sounds like Alaska, that makes sense. But it was, uh, it was a great opportunity uh, to see people as they were going into the service and to be have working for you the people that were going to select these people to go into the service. So I thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah, you had an amazing career, and I've loved hearing more and more details about what your experience was like. But after you retired, you weren't done doing stuff for the military. Let's talk a little bit about the Women in Service Memorial and what your role was. Well, I had been out for a couple of years, and when they uh, were f- had formed the foundation that had been authorized by the Congress to build a memorial paying tribute to the women who'd served in the military. And so there were about five of us females in the Washington, D.C. area who had been general of one type or another, one or two stars, and the others didn't were not interested in taking over as president of that foundation, and I wasn't either. And so they came and asked me, and I finally said, all right, I will be a member, but I absolutely will not be president. So after about three months after I'd started at that, one evening I was sitting at home, and I got a phone call from a Marine Corps colonel who was one of the board members, and she said, why weren't you at the meeting? I said, what meeting? She said, at that board we're on. I said, I forgot about it. What did you do? She said, we elected officers and you're the new president. (laughs) I said, I told you I was not going to be president. She said, I know that's what you said, but you're now the president. (laughs) 
And I spent the first six or eight months trying to figure out how in the world, because I wasn't a fundraiser, I wasn't a building builder, I wasn't an architect, you know, can I get this done? I finally decided as I traveled around and I talked to women about the possibility of having a memorial, and they were so enthusiastic about it, the women who had served, particularly during World War II, They wanted to be recognized. They had never been recognized. When they had a parade where they lived, they never let the woman be in the parade. It was just the men. So there were many things there. They put up memorials, put the men's name and didn't put the women's name. So I finally decided that we had to do it. Somebody had to do it and get it done, or we might never have another opportunity to do it. And uh, that's what I started working on, and fortunately was successful enough that we now have a memorial that I think we're all proud of. Yeah, and one of the cool things about the memorial is that you can tell your story as a woman veteran, and I'll put a link in the show notes if people want to do that. But you can tell their story, and then if someone comes to the memorial, they can look up your name, right? That's correct. That's one of the features. So I was very touched one day when I was there, and there were a couple of young fellows there, and one of them was calling the other one, hey, we got to get on with our the rest of what we're trying to do. He said, I can't go till I get my grandmother's picture that's here at the the memorial because she was in the service and he didn't leave until he got his picture of his grandmother. And I thought, this is what this memorial is about, that it's a record for families forever. I don't know if you noticed, but the logo for the podcast, I was at the memorial and I was looking at the displays and at the end of like the hallway, there was three pictures and it was a woman and she had with the salute and that's where I got the idea for my logo. And so, so the memorial is kind of tied into the podcast because that was where I didn't know what to do. And then I saw that picture and I knew exactly what to do. So to me, one of the most extreme most important aspects of the memorial is the registration of women who serve, because that's what it's about, is to pay tribute to these women. Now, there's another facet of it, and that is to tell the story, because many women don't really know what the story is of what women have done. So it's got the history. And third, as we were looking for a place to have it, it was to have a place where there was a relationship between being in the service and uh, the memorial. And I think we accomplished that by having it there adjacent to Arlington National Cemetery. So as I think about it, one of my challenges or one of the things I wanted to do before we had the dedication, I was hoping that we would have, I think my goal was was 500. Well, I had a goal of 500,000. There have been two, many, two or three million women who served, so we're a long way from it. But I can think it was a 1,000 I was trying to get by dedication. Didn't make it. We are now up to 269,000 women, so we've come a long way. And we've had women all around the country sending in obituaries that they would see in the paper it might be somebody they knew. It might be somebody they didn't know. They would send them in so that we could get them added in uh, so there'd be a record. So we've come a long way. 
we've got a long way to go from 269,000 to 3 million. Yep, we have to get all of them. I need to be more active on sharing about it on social media, so I'm going to start doing that. There are two aspects of this. You know, when you think about women who serve, uh, the first thing you would think about are those women who are in one of the branches of the service. We also decided that we should include some women who did what they did was significant. There were women who served overseas during time of war and that, that were in the... Uh, Red Cross, and they were there where there was action going on, that those type of women we should include as they also serve. So we had some other women who were formed that, who were in that category that we felt should be included as they also serve because they gave of their time, gave of their lives to, to be helpful, to help our country in times of war. As we think about it, it isn't just the women who served yesterday who should be registered. It's women who are serving right now. And from the very beginning, and the first, probably the first the five people that registered, I would have been one of those. And now I was out of the service. I was retired by then. But we had, uh, very quickly, we had some who were serving then that were registered. And all the way through, we have worked to encourage women who were serving to register and be registered and stay in touch while they're registered. When they get promoted, when they get recognized for something, there are all sorts of reasons why you might add information to your registration. Your rank changes, and you should change it to your new rank. It's just a going thing. But the important thing is to get people's name and record in there from the first time on. People who are just recently signed up need to understand the importance of what they've done and the importance of of registering early in the game and uh, making sure that their name is there. You can make a donation to the memorial, which is a nice thing for people to do, but it is free. You do not have to donate to register. You do not have to donate to register somebody else. The important thing is that we get everybody registered that we possibly can. So my last question is, what advice would you give to young ladies that are looking to join the military? Well, uh, one of the first things that uh, you need to do, you need to understand that you need to take care of yourself. You need to take care of your people. And if you don't take care of your people, you can be assured they're going to take care of you. And you may not like it too well when they take care of you. Because I have known people who didn't take care of their people and their their people got rid of them. The second thing is don't lose your sense of humor. There are times is just really tough and you need to be able to think about things that so you don't lose your sense of humor that you should have the courage to take and do volunteer work whenever you get that opportunity because it may be the opportunity to do something that may lead you to a promotion or to some other job or to something but don't be afraid to take it and do a promotion and to do everything you can to encourage those you come in contact with that aren't doing what they need to do 
to have a better life in the future. You need to encourage them to go to college or to do whatever it is that they need to learn to do a better job, whatever it is, to live better, to get along with people better, so that they do that and so that they have a better life for themselves and maybe for you too because you're in those surroundings. That's great advice. Thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast this week. I really loved hearing your story. 